an international summit to discuss human genome editing and whether it could be conducted. The speed of these scientific developments, like a lot of, uh, like the uh, increasing rate of change generally in a lot of these trends, continues to outpace the ability to, uh, for us to prepare. Given this reality, we have convened this panel discussion to explore how we can better prepare for the coming revolution in genetics. It is the first in a series of events on this important topic. We have another event scheduled for next week on the national implications of gene editing. So please go to our website, and if you're interested, send us a note. Um, some of you probably already received inv invitations. Now, this panel um, is made up of an incredibly accomplished group of specialists, which we're very pleased to have with us this afternoon. Um, they're all very well versed in the history, science, and implications of gene editing. Now, you have full bios um, in your packet, or should have been on your, on your seat, but I'll just go down and give you the few lines on, on each one. Dr. Pierre Noel is a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and serves as the director of the blood and marrow transplant program in the division of hermatology at, at the Mayo Clinic. In 2000, he served as consultant for the White House National Security Council. Dr. Noel is also a non-resident senior fellow here at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. Dr. Keith Stewart is Director and Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic uh, Center for Individualized Medicine. Dr. Stewart and his colleagues are conducting research to understand what makes patients resistant to drugs and applying this knowledge with clinical trials. Colonel Nelson Michael is Director of the U.S. Military HIV Research Program at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. He also currently serves on, the president, on President Obama's Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. And the, our final um, uh, panelist is Dr. Paula Bryant, is Senior Scientific Officer at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. She is responsible for identifying and shepherding novel, innovative concepts and technologies into viable product development pathways. Before I turn it over to Dr. Noel, who's going to moderate the discussion, I'd like to remind everybody um, that uh, you can follow the discussion on Twitter. Please use the hashtag ACForesight. And this, um, uh, this event is on the record. So with that, Dr. Noel, I'll turn it over to you and your colleagues. Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, this uh, conference on gene editing. Uh, my role this afternoon initially is to just introduce the topic and render the terminology maybe a little bit more palatable. Gene editing is a very hot topic. It's captured the attention 
of the media, both the lay media and the scientific media. And as you can see in the bottom in the middle, CRISPR has almost become a household word. Uh, and uh, when I talk about CRISPR, I'm not referring to the bacon, but I am uh, re referring to the clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. And that's a mouthful, and I'm not going to, I'm going to use CRISPR instead of this long sentence. CRISPR and gene editing is not only big science, it's big business. And currently, some of you may be aware, there's this uh, patent fight between MIT and Berkeley on who was the first to invent. And the reason for this is uh, we project that by 2019, CRISPR will be a $3.5 billion business. So there's a lot of money linked to this. Now, what is CRISPR and what is Cas9? And this is a very simplified version to try to make you understand a little bit how it works. So scientists build uh, something called a guide RNA. And this guide RNA binds to a piece of DNA, which is the piece of DNA that you want to try to modify. And in order to do that, you need a pair of scissors. So the pair of scissors is called Cas9. You put both the DNA, the guide RNA, and the scissors together, and you're going to be able to cut out the area of DNA of interest and remove it. And then you can switch things around and put a new piece of DNA instead in its place, and then voila, you have gene editing. Just so we're clear about semantics, there's two big boxes. One is somatic gene editing. And in somatic gene editing, I take a consenting patient, and I take his cells, and I do gene editing on this patient's cells. So for example, if you have someone with, someone with hemophilia, I could replace that piece of DNA and have the individual produce factor eight and relieve the symptoms of hemophilia. This type of change does not go from generation to generation. It stops with that specific patient. The other big box is called germline gene editing. And in germline gene editing, it's the same concept. But what we do is we use the embryo. Because of this, the change goes from generation to generation and possibly can be a change which goes down for perpetuity. An example of this is BRAC1. So BRAC1 is uh, something which is present in some women with breast cancer, and it increases the risk of breast cancer. So you may want to remove that gene in order to make your daughters and granddaughters free of breast cancer, or at least to minimize their risk. So this is an example of germline gene editing. So gene editing has been around for about 20 years. What is the big deal with CRISPR? Why are we suddenly so interested? And why is this in the headlines? Well, compared to previous methods, CRISPR is both accessible, easy, fast, and cheap. How accessible? Well, right now, we have a generation of do-it-yourself gene hackers who go either in community labs and their garages or in their kitchens 
and are able to use CRISPR to do gene editing. Now, what they do currently, for the most part, is they do that on plants and flowers and modify the color of flowers. And at this point in time, one of the big concerns is, well, people produce bioweapons in their garage. And it requires a significant amount of sophistication to produce a bioweapon. So at this point in time, the editing of microbes and creating bioweapons is felt to be out of reach of do-it-yourself gene hackers. But because of the access to the technique, the ease of the technique, it opens the door for other individuals, maybe a little bit more sophisticated, of producing bioweapons. As an example, something which is current, there is a disease in Eastern Europe which is called African swine fever. And a lot of pigs die of this infection. The warthogs are resistant to this infection. So one thing which has been done in domestic pigs is to take the genome or part of the genome of the warthog and change the gene with the RELA gene in domestic pigs. And that renders the domestic pig resistant to this form of flu. Now, when we look at embryonic gene rearrangement or uh, gene engineering, public support varies depending on what the intent of the technique is. If it's for disease prevention, such as cystic fibrosis, uh, sickle cell, there tends to be more public support for this. If it's for enhancements, for example, increase in height, uh, eye color, or more hair, uh, there is less support. And because of this, this is an area of controversy and an area of intense interest. As previously mentioned by Matt, in May of 2015, there was a major wake-up call. Ch a Chinese group of scientists published for the first time gene editing in a human embryo. Uh, and this, these embryos were not meant to be placed in the uterus and grow, but it w was a proof of principle that it could be done. This led to a conference a few months later in December in Washington, D.C., a summit on human gene editing where the bioethics as well as the regulation aspects of the technique were discussed. As Matt previously mentioned, a few months after this conference, Director Clapper stated that gene editing is a WMD threat. And the reason for this is that, as I mentioned, the technique is easy, it's cheap, and it's accessible. And if it falls in the wrong hands, like terrorist group or rogue nations, it is possible for them to use the technique and develop weapons with more ease than it was 20 years ago. So hopefully, I've been able to introduce the topic uh, talk about some of the benefits of the techniques, some of the risks of the techniques, clarify the nomenclature, and set the stage for my friends to be able to discuss with you the medical, bioethical, and biodefense implications of gene editing. Without further ado, I'll give this podium to Keith.
thank you, uh, Dr. Nell. Thank you, Dr. Burrows, for inviting us here today. Um, my name is Keith Stewart. My, my job at Mayo Clinic is to uh, bring the power of the human genome to our medical practice, both from the diagnostics, but also from the therapeutic uh, angle. And what I won't talk about today is, is um, gene editing with respect to uh, potential bacteria, for example, but rather it's human application. If you can't remember who I am, I always tell people I'm the Scottish guy from Scottsdale, so you'll, you'll remember that. <laughs> Nobody remembers the name afterwards. I wanted to start by reminding you that we're, this is not uh, virginal territory we're in here. In my early career, I practiced or tried to practice the field of gene therapy. This was something that evolved in the early 1990s. And in fact, uh, the earliest clinical trials of gene therapy took place around 1994. So in 20 years, for 20 years, we've had the ability to genetically manipulate uh, human cells and other materials. We usually used viral vectors for this, retroviruses, lantiviruses, adenoviruses. Uh, and despite, and I can say this because I was part of the field at the time, uh, a lot of hype, a lot of effort, a lot of money, and even to the current day, not a great deal of success, although we're beginning to see some green shoots of that in, in certain applications, particularly in the thalassemias, for example. And the reason it wasn't successful, and the, and the reason I mention it, is many of the challenges with gene therapy where genes were overexpressed are the same challenges we have with gene editing. To successfully conduct gene therapy, first of all, you have to get the gene into the cell. In the case of CRISPR, you have to get two different genes into the cell. That turns out to be a rather low-efficiency low procedure. We were lucky if we could infect 1% of hematopoietic stem cells or blood-forming stem cells. Even if we were successful in introducing the virus into the cell, the cell didn't tend to stick around very long. And if it did, the amount of the engineered protein produced by the gene was generally too low to successfully correct the genetic problem we were targeting. Sometimes the protein we made and the virus itself uh, activated the immune system and were very rapidly destroyed, particularly when we used the common cold virus, the adenovirus, for example. And finally, and I think of most concern, was uh, that these viruses tended to integrate rather randomly into the genome. And there were cases uh, presented initially from France, but then in other places where children treated with gene therapy developed a second malignancy and a, a leukemia because the virus inserted somewhere in the genome it wasn't supposed to. Gene editing, unlike conventional gene therapy, which, as I've just said, counts success as thousands of unique semi-random vector integration events, many occurring near active genes, so which could be turned on or off by accident. Uh, unlike that, genome editing, as you've already heard, is a little bit easier. It's a little bit more efficient. It's a little bit more specific. And so it's the therapeutic potential for seamless repair with only the desired genetic mutation. The target medically and most logically might be the 3,600 single gene disorders that are known to medicine. Those are not, however, where trials have started. There are already trials of human gene editing underway, and I've listed uh, four there, that three of which are clearly underway, one of which has been talked about. Uh, the first one took um, 
HIV-infected individuals or, or who were at high risk, the uh, individuals, took the T lymphocytes or is taking the T lymphocytes out of their peripheral blood and engineering them to delete a gene which is the receptor for the HIV virus, which in theory can then be reintroduced to that patient and make them resistant to HIV infection. Now, we have an expert on HIV resistance and vaccination with us today, so I'll, I'll stop myself getting in any more trouble except to say that um, that's an interesting concept and it's certainly one that uh, you know, I think will be fraught with some challenges to successfully complete, but uh, is, as you can imagine some of the ways people are thinking about using these technologies. That didn't use CRISPR, it used a, a, a less mature, a, a, sorry, a, an earlier venture of gene editing called Zinc Fingers. A commercial companies are beginning to get into this now. There is a clinical trial that you can read about, I don't know if it started, to treat congenital blindness by altering uh, uh, retinal cells called congenital amaurosis. And then there's this whole field of cancer immunotherapy where we're starting to see the earliest uh, CRISPR interventions. And for those of you not familiar with what's happening in the world of cancer today, we're, we're in the middle of a revolution, the early days of it, where harnessing the immune system is finally successfully being applied quite dramatically in some cases to treat uh, various cancers. The concept is again, you take these uh, immune protective T cells from the peripheral blood, you genetically engineer them to both find the tumor cell specifically and then attract all their friends to come in and help uh, killing the cell. Um, the problem is today that to do that, you need to take a patient with a cancer, you need to remove these T cells from their blood, you need to genetically engineer them, you need to let them grow for a few weeks, you need to make sure they're sterile and safe, and then you, so the patient has to stay in remission for long enough and be healthy for long enough. Then you infuse them into that individual, and again, uh, very dramatic results, so curing young kids with acute leukemia by doing that. Uh, the estimated cost, however, is over half a million dollars per person. It's highly individualized. You have to do this uniquely for each person. And so one of the solutions is that to have an off-the-shelf product. And this is where CRISPR trials are being tried, to take T cells from any one of us, grow them up, remove the piece of the T cell that makes them uh, unique to the host, so you can infuse them into anybody and have them survive, and then engineer them in the, in the way that we talked about already. But the, the advantage being you don't have to wait, they're sitting there ready for use in your patient when they walk in the door. And this is the first CRISPR uh, gene therapy, uh, uh, gene editing trial in the United States at the University of Pennsylvania. The first success actually came from a, a, you know, the young woman shown here was in London, uh, provided by a commercial French uh, company. And then we see the Chinese, as you've already heard, uh, jumping into the fray here, and they are conducting the similar trial, but this time in lung cancer. And I, I couldn't resist leaving the quote on the side. I decided not to bully up, but Mr. Trump here saying things are just going to get worse. So I thought it was appropriate to leave it there. Um, so that's what one, this is kind of where we start to, to get worried. It's not that the Chinese scientists conduct bad science, but I think we begin to uh, be a little bit concerned about uh, uh, the oversight and control and, uh, of these, as you just heard already, some human embryo uh, gene editing happening. 
Uh, beyond these inherited diseases, we can start to think about modifying what we call polygenic diseases. So these are genes that are not, uh, these are genes which can um, increase the risk for disease but not cause disease on their own. And the classic ones are shown here, which is the APOE gene that can predispose you to Alzheimer's. The uh, PCSK9 gene, which will make your cholesterol go very high and predispose you to cardiac problems. And uh, cancer inherited risk genes such as BRCA1. Those all sound like good ideas to modify in the germline and maybe eradicate those risks in human populations. Uh, the problem is that we're a little bit uncertain what the risks of that are. It, in one article I'll talk about in a second, it was pointed out that when you, there's been some suggestion that APOE, for example, is involved in memory. And, by, and that, that people who have deficiency in APOE can have memory problems. And therefore, if we start to remove it from human populations, what will we do with, with you know, the consequences of that? Even if we present Alzheimer's, if nobody can remember anything, it won't matter. <clears throat> and this has led to this concern about uh, so-called designer babies that you could, in, in theory, take this technology. And not only could you, in populations, try and prevent Alzheimer's and breast cancer and stroke and myocardial infarction, but you could, in, at least in principle, uh, make an athlete with great hearing and vision or a, a, uh, a soldier with, with excessive uh, muscle force and strength. And I'm grateful for uh, Dr. Eric Lander, who's the director and chairman of the Broad Institute in Boston, who wrote a editorial, which I, I recommend to you if, you if you're interested in this, in the New England Journal last year. And I'm just going to borrow from him fairly heavily here because I thought it was a very well-written article. And he talks about in this article published last year about four key issues, technical need, autonomy, and morality around the gene editing uh, field. And I, I put his comments here. Far from ready was his comment around technical use of gene editing in human medicine, at least. And the problem is, and it goes back to this Chinese paper where gene editing was performed in these uh, embryos that weren't going to ever make a baby, but um, and what they found was when they did gene editing, which was supposed to be specific, the gene editing was inaccurate, it was inefficient, and it wasn't as specific as they thought. So the spe specificity of editing isn't ready, the efficiency isn't ready. We still have all those problems I talked about earlier, getting the genes into the right cell, making the cell survive, making sure you don't disrupt anything else by accident, which is still a bit random until we completely understand and map everybody's genome. Uh, the ability to have the gene turned on and off at the right time and place. And finally, the potential that if you correct a mutant protein and make the normal one, the body may see that as immunogenic and just reject it. To conduct genome editing in humans would require making in vitro uh, acquiring in vitro fertilized embryos, using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, to identify those people at risk for the disease, taking the embryo, finding the cells, the embryos that have that mutation, repairing it and re-implanting it. Dr. Lander points out very cleverly in his article that it would be much easier and safer just to find the people who are at risk, select the embryos that don't continue the mutation and implant those. You don't need to. There are very few instances in human medicine where all the embryos are affected. For an autosomal dominant disease, it's only half of them. And for an autosomal recessive disease, it's only 25% of the embryos 
you have perfectly normal ones that you could pick and, and implant. So he points out that to reduce the incidence of single gene diseases, what's needed most is not embryo editing, but routine genetic testing so we all know who's at risk, particularly if we, if we marry people with the same problem. And this is getting a little bit away from today's topic, but it's one of the reasons that we feel that um, part of this genomic revolution will come by sequencing uh, everybody. At one point, so we'll all know what our genomes harbor, and we'll be able to make deliberate choices about whether we want to pass those mutations on to subsequent generations or not. He also talked about need, and uh, again, I quote directly from the article which says, today's debate concerns not research, which I think we all agree proceed. My lab uses CRISPR daily now for the experiments we want to conduct in cancer and cancer uh, drug resistance. But clinical applications to human beings result, that result in permanent changes to the, the gene pool uh, probably should be banned. And that's because of what we just told you. There's really no need to do it. You can get where you need to be just by using um, uh, gene sequencing and, and embryo selection. He talks about autonomy and morality. And I put those on one slide. And the two questions that are asked is, does a parent have the autonomy to edit the genome of their child, knowing that that's irreversible in the population and will be disseminated through generations? In other words, does that parent's grandchildren have no, uh, does, she, does she have some ethical responsibility to them, not just their own child? And is this what society believes in? Is this what we really want to see happen, the, the whole editing of human embryos or not? I'll close there, and uh, thank you for your attention. I'll just invite Colonel Michael to come and give the next lecture. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. I must say I have mixed feelings about the whole height adjustment issues. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk to you today about bioethics. It is coming from the standpoint of an infectious disease physician with a PhD in molecular biology. So I'm going to uh, do the, the typical uh, trick that one uses when you're um, on a medical student rotation. If you get to ask a question you don't really know the answer to, you cleverly change the question just a little bit. And then I think you can hit the target. You'll see that, uh, what, I, what I mean by that in a moment. The overarching points I want you to remember that this is not the first time that scientists and bioethicists and communities have struggled with advances in molecular biology, which has been pointed out by previous speakers. There needs to be a carefully and transparently conducted debate between a reflexive conservatism with advances in genetics and simply letting science rip. And how to find that sweet spot, I think um, one of my very last slides I'm going to point to a document that we've used in the HIV field to allow us to truly adopt a well-communicated set of principles of community engagement that I think, um, even though they were designed for HIV uh, prevention trials, are currently being um, looked at in terms of adapting for emerging infectious diseases for reasons that are obvious. Uh, but I also think that the major lessons in that document have a lot of uh, implication for other uh, aspects of science to include this debate. So not our first rodeo. In 1975, this man here, Paul Berg, um, shown in his lab at, at Stanford, uh, and just a few years later, I was a graduate student there, 
doing my, my work. And he used a technique to, to fuse for the first time two pieces of DNA from two different organisms. Okay? So this is the, really the birth of genetic engineering. This caused him and uh, some of his colleagues to generate a debate in the field. I must say it was largely a debate within the scientific community. Others came to a conference just down the coast from Stanford in Pacific Grove, which is on the Monterey Peninsula, the Asilomar um, uh, Conference Center. And here you, you can see uh, Francis Crick with uh, one of my uh, heroes, Stanley Brenner, uh, at that conference. And largely what it was, it was a conversation between scientists saying, what are we going to do with this new technology? And if we don't police ourselves first, then we will be policed by others who don't have uh, some of the insights that we have. But they very uh, importantly did invite uh, members of the, uh, of, the, of the community writ large to also attend. So this was 140 individuals that met largely to discuss safety and not bioethics. They were mostly scientists, but there were some in law and in journalism. And here you can see the, uh, the, the dates. This led to a cur the currently used physical and biological containment approaches and the uh, birth of recombinant DNA advisory committees. So those of us that are in the field, I mean, this to us is textbook knowledge now. It's lore. So, but it was the first time, really, when the, the, the eighth day of creation, as molecular biology sometimes has been called, led to a real introspection about what were we doing? Were we playing God? And, and uh, I think you'll see that these issues resonate. So it was actually, it was the idea of, of biological con containment that actually was Sidney Brenner's. And his concept, and I want you to really you know, struggle with this one, yes, we can work on physical containment of potentially superbugs. But his point was biology is so unbelievably adept at resorting genetic sequences, it does it all the time. HIV can change every base pair of its genome in one infected person in 24 hours. So nature is very, very, very used to making lots of, of changes in genomes and letting natural selection sort it out. It's far more clever than, than we are. His point was, if you make changes in these organisms, you're probably going to inadvertently be making them weaker. You probably will be giving them very subtle uh, genetic changes to make them less uh, able to propagate uh, outside in the real world. But let's double down on that and actually allow engineering to occur in bacteria that we know are already inferior to wild-type strains that you would see outside of the laboratory's wall. So I really thought that this group, um, it had some flaws. It had plenty of them, but I think they really got a lot of it right. Now, this is where I'm going to do the bait and switch. The lessons that I believe um, uh, we learned from Asilomar then <clears throat> came to us in 2010 in a concept known as synthetic biology. So this does not really seem like a title of a paper that came out from Craig Ventner's group that should cause a lot of hysteria, creation of a bacterial cell controlled by a chemically synthesized genome. But, but it did. And this was the immediate public um, um, thought, was whether or not uh, Dr. Ventner was creating life. Um, did, did this actually test the, um, the bioethical uh, standards of, of, of uh, Judeo-Christian uh, ethos, and was he playing God? So I'll, I'll put it to you, is Dr. Ventner a scientist or is he a deity? Um, I'm not sure how he would answer that question. But the critical point is this. In, for me as a molecular biologist, when I read that paper, I said, that's a good piece of work. Meh. Why? Because he simply took um, something that was given to us by nature, took a natural cell. He engineered heavily, so he took the, the genomic DNA out. And obviously, he needed to understand the genetic makeup, so it was sequenced. <clears throat> and then they used tricks at that time, which were 
fairly revolutionary. We're very used to working with relatively small pieces of DNA to make them Initially, when the, the ability to make synthetic DNAs came out, this would take you three or four months to make a, a, a very short stretch that goes to the mid-70s. But by the time we rolled into the, into the early 1990s, you could have a, a relatively inexpensive machine that looks like this one um, on your desk, and you could actually make relatively long stretches of DNA, maybe up, up to 50 or 60 or 70. So that technology got bigger and better, and then it became actually relatively easy to make very long stretches of DNA. So what did he do? He made eight overlapping segments, he stitched them together, and then, and this is where um, I think the critical point is, he then reinserts that into a chromosome-less cell. Now, if Dr. Ventner is, in, is inventing life, who made the cell whose chromosome he had removed to put a new one in? Well, I can tell you he didn't make it, so it came from nature. So this is why, from the very beginning, I shrugged and I said, he's not inventing life, but he's doing tour de force molecular biology. Um, if you dig deep into that paper, there were enough mistakes in those eight segments. They had to come in and use site-directed immunogenesis, a very common, all of the scientists are nodding. He used very common techniques in our art and our science to fix those bits that could all be put together. Okay, um, but it did cause a, um, um, a request from the president to come to us. We had just formed about a year ago, um, before this um, report, and we had a bunch of, of things that we were thinking of looking at in terms of bioethics, but we do work for the president. And he asked us to investigate this issue within about three days of his publication. Specifically, he asked us to review the developing field of synthetic biology to consider the potential medical and environmental security and other benefits as well as potential health, security, or other risks. Sound familiar? Um, and to identify the appropriate ethical boundaries to maximize public benefits and minimize risk. So I'm going to speak to you today, because I did and still sit on this committee. We're just in the process of winding down, because I think that we did a very deep dive on a, on a very, very related topic. And looking into what's been published on the bioethics of gene editing and looking at the deep dive that we did here over a year, 20 people, um, half of whom are staff, half of whom are commissioners, working on what we eventually published, I really think that this is the, um, the place to, to start our conversation. So we held three public meetings um, in 2010, in, um, uh, first in Washington, D.C., then in Philadelphia. That, that particular meeting, I'm going to come back to the very last slide, and then in Atlanta, Georgia, so that we could have an open and transparent debate. Now, the, the, the chairs of this commission were the president of the University of Pennsylvania and Emory University. So as you can imagine, having those discussions on college campuses was something that, what, that uh, they felt very strongly about. And much like this kind of meeting, most people that were, quote, in the room were in the room virtually. So these are very open and transparent discussions. So, we initially uh, put the risk and benefits in, in two very, very large buckets. The first was we saw at least three potential near-term benefits. More effective and efficient production of vaccines comes to the ability to make a long stretch of DNA. But I think you can see how gene editing um, very similar kinds of thoughts. You could make env environmentally friendly biofuel uh, production, same thing. And the ability to improve synthesized pharmaceuticals. And in this case, we were thinking amongst those examples would be the artemisins, which are now have transformed the treatment of malaria in the developing world. Critics, however, ex um, uh, would express concerns about playing God, threatening biodiversity, and the organization of natural history of species, because we're tinkering in the laboratory. Refer to my comment that, na that nature does this a lot smarter and better and faster than we do. And demeaning and, and disrespecting the meaning of life, threatening long standing concepts of nature. So what were some important reassurances? <clears throat> First, you opened the Code of Federal Regulations. And because largely of what happened in Asilomar, now back in, in 1975, 
there were already a wide array of federal laws, regulations, and guidance that currently existed to control the use of molecular biology in the laboratory, in the environment, in the workplace, and in the market. So I'll refer you to, obviously, guidance that comes out from the National Institutes of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, the Envi Environmental Protection Agency, and other agencies. Bioengineered uh, organisms revert quickly to wild type or die. And this is a comment that, you know, again, goes back to 75 and the admonitions from a guy like Sidney Brenner. Um, very, very, very small differences in survival in biological organisms. And consider a bacteria that can replicate every 20 minutes. If it has a, even a slight disadvantage over a handful of life cycles, that, that disadvantage becomes magnified. But in a very short period of time, a bacteria that maybe had an advantage in a test tube all of a sudden doesn't have a, an advantage in the big bag world, okay? I mean, think of yourself maybe strapping on a pistol and then walking down a street where everyone has a machine gun. Doesn't look so good. Okay, so Asilomar had, had provided um, the precedent, and once again, it was the issue of containment, both physical and biological containment. The FBI has already been working, continues to work with the do-it-yourself um, bio community. Now, I will say all of us put our slides together before we actually saw them, and I was just delighted to see that there's so much uh, reference from one to the other. And the idea that you can't do this in your garage. So <clears throat> the commission findings on synthetic biology were, this is a field in its infancy, sounds very similar to what Dr. Lander said, and that major foreseeable risks are still far off, and the Ventner Institute work was not the creation of life. So <clears throat> because we were a bioethics commission, we referred and made 18 recommendations to the president. And the good news, I am not going to show you these all 18 recommendations. I will put them into context in these bins. Much like the Belmont report focused on beneficence, um, respect toward persons, here we're calling it responsible stewardship and justice and fairness, we used um, a couple of, of newer uh, bioethical concepts, intellectual freedom and, res and responsibility, but especially democratic deliberation. In the current election cycle, this is something I think you'll find uh, uh, quite interesting. And in, in the commission chair is one of the leads of promulgating this type of public debate um, of, of, that's called democratic deliberation. So public beneficence. This is mainly to, to maximize public benefits and minimize public harm. Now, how would this one promote public uh, beneficence? So the, uh, one of our recommendations was to review public funding opportunities for promising work in synthetic biology, including funding for techniques to minimize the risks and for the study of ethical and social issues. Most hardcore scientists aren't too thrilled, um, as well as healthcare providers when they have to take courses in bioethics. But I think this is something that we need to uh, continue to hammer away at. If scientific and medical communities do not uh, make even the attempt to police themselves, others will. And I will tell you that will probably be a less perfect um, solution set. We have to ensure that the most promising scientific research is conducted on behalf of the public. Meritorious science first and always, and that is conducted on behalf of the public who largely funds it uh, for talking about public funding. And that's exactly how that goes. We have to determine whether uh, current research licensing and sharing practices are sufficient to ensure that that basic science, the results, including synthetic um, biology, were available to promote innovation. Responsible stewardship. There's a shared obligation among members of the domestic and global communities to act in ways that demonstrate concern for those who are not in a position to represent themselves and for the environment in which future generations will flourish or suffer. So we, do, we are avoiding the, the white towerism where those of us that have advanced degrees and work in fancy research institutes, we know better than you, and we'll just tell you in a very paternalistic way that we know better and things are fine, you should just trust us. Not good enough. And a call for prudent vigilance, and this is something that I'll get to in the very last slide. 
Establish processes for assessing likely benefits along with the assessing both the safety and security risks for both um, before and after projects are undertaken. So therefore, neither have a moratorium until all risks are identified or mitigated, nor allow unfettered freedom for scientific exploration. So this was what I said in the beginning. Finding the sweet spot between being genetically, for genetic research being incredibly conservative and just letting science rip. No, uh, no additional agencies or oversight bodies uh, focus specifically on synthetic biologies, and we, um, we didn't think that that was, that, was, that was necessary. And I will leave it up to the debate as to whether or not for gene editing this remains sufficient. But this was the conclusion that we came to after a very, very deep dive. We urged the Executive Office of the President in consultation with relevant federal agencies to develop guidelines, however. Why is that important? Because in the federal government, until you get to the level that sits above all federal agencies, you really don't have significant control. Right, so the, to the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, which I sit in, the uh, Health and Human Services go down the line. It isn't until you get it to the Office of the President, and specifically the Office of um, the White House, Office of Science and Technology Policy, where you can have an interagency discussion and interagency guidance on how all of us need to conduct business within the, within the federal government. There's a need to discuss uh, risk and assessment review and perform a, a field release gap analysis. This was specifically thinking about the um, the agricultural use of synthetic biology or the agricultural use of gene editing, to require a reasonable risk assessment or, sci or scientifically sound ex uh, exemptions to prior field release and provide ongoing review of what those risks would be, to ensure that an international coordination and dialogue occurred. We live in a highly connected world, but think of um, you know, farms in the upper um, Midwest that are close to uh, an international border. Ensure international coordination is, is critical, therefore. Develop and require ethics education outside of the medical setting and engage in an ongoing evaluation of moral objections. In other words, continue to watch. In terms of intellectual freedom and responsibility, dem democracies depend on this. And we, um, we therefore believe that it, coupled with the responsibility of individuals and institutions to create their, to, to maximize their creative uh, potential, it has to be done in morally responsive ways. We did, however, make a very strong call for regulatory parsimony. And those of you that are involved in clinical research and um, looking at the first iterations of a review of a clinical protocol that may be 14 pages long, single-spaced, uh, the idea is that we recommend only that level of, uh, of oversight that's truly necessary to ensure these principles while uh, assuring the public good. Again, a balance between letting science rip and between being overly conservative. We, we call for a support of the, a, a continued culture of individual and corporate responsibility and self-regulation by the research community in addition to oversight. To continue to assess specific security and safety risks of synthetic biology, research activities in both institutional and non-institutional settings, and lastly, to consider making compliance with certain oversight or reporting measures mandatory for all researchers, including those in institutions and non-institutional settings regarding regardless of funding uh, sources. So democratic deliberation, that's uh, the second to the last point. This was an approach to allow a collective decision making that embraces respectful debate of opposing views and active participation by citizens. And I'll leave it up to you as to whether that, that occurred on television last night. The idea of democratic del deliberations, you put two people in a room, or you put two sides in a room, and there is debate. When one person talks, one side talks, the other side listens. And that they may be very, very far apart, but both sides attempt to work out their differences and find some degrees of commonality through open debate. And that debate um, is being attended to by people who have similar or, or, or blended 
um, uh, thoughts on this uh, approach. So pr promoting de uh, democratic deliberations is important. This, this takes away the poison of having people saying, you simply can't do this. It's immoral. Why? Because it's immoral. I don't need to justify my position. Uh, others saying, you can't stand in the way of progress. So bringing these two sides together is, is important. Um, democratic deliberation is a way of doing that. And it involves, of course, um, fact-checking and an expanding public education and engagement on emerging issues in synthetic biology and science generally. So a way to, to get communities closer together. And lastly, justice and fairness. This relates to the distribution of benefits and burdens to a society. To promote justice and fairness, the executive office of the president should lead an interagency evaluation of current requirements, alternative models to identify mechanisms that ensure the risks of research in synthetic biology, including for human subjects, affected parties who are not fairly or necessarily distri um, distributed. This means that those engaged in research and those research uh, volunteers should not be the only ones that benefit from this technology and that there should be a distribution, spent, especially if public money is involved, a distribution, a fair distribution of that knowledge to the population that has some skin in the game at some level um, overall. So the commission submitted its first report to the president on, um, with 18 recommendations on the 15th of December of 2010. This is, you can find this at bioethics.gov. It's a quick read. I would urge you to take a look at it. And I would urge you to take a look at it in context with other ongoing debates about bioethics for gene editing. And I'd ask you to understand um, or debate as to whether or not you think these would be a sufficient framework to start those discussions. Are we missing something? Or is gene editing really derivative to the idea of tinkering with DNA that goes back to the era of the Silomar? OK, um, I did tell you that I was going to leave you with a document that I think uh, is, if you're interested in bioethics, the question is, how do you do this? How do you do this in communities? How do you go into West Baltimore and potentially discuss maybe a human challenge model for Zika, as an example? How do you communicate that esoteric idea? And why would you want to be the first person to introduce such a virus into that community? But maybe there's a means to an end. And maybe there's a rationale to do something like that. Good participatory practices essentially is a codified set of guidelines that came up between the UN AIDS and the AIDS Vaccine Advisory Coalition. It's translated now into over 20 languages, has many toolkits, but essentially it describes all of us as a community, from the research volunteer in the middle to a tribal elder or a brother or sister around, and it goes all the way out to the very end of that, uh, um, of that onion, the very uh, first layer would be national um, regulatory bodies, would be international organizations, et cetera. But I would highly uh, suggest you read that, because I think if you follow these kind of guidelines, we'll keep ourselves out of trouble. OK, so let me um, just um, end by saying that I had the honor of sitting next to this man, who was one of my heroes uh, for most of my professional life, Sidney Brenner, who was at Asilomar. This is an uh, earlier version of him. This is a more current version. And he was responsible for some tectonic discoveries in our field, like. Um, there was something called messenger RNA and how DNA and RNA could talk to each other through anti-codons, which we now know as transfer RNA. I mean, the man was just an amazing icon in the field of molecular biology. And, and he told us um, just six years ago, he recalled a comment from an activist during a news conference at, um, at Silomar. He said this man screamed at him and said, you're making babies in your laboratories. And he responded, I can think of a lot more fun ways to do that. Um, and his point was, that we tend to overblow these kinds of things, and that, but, but, but there, was, there needed to be a respectful conversation. And the fact that he would engage with someone in the community in that kind of way to diffuse, because he wasn't saying, I don't agree with you. He was saying, think about what you're saying. 
you know, there's, there's probably, uh, it's probably a little, little bit overblown. His, his advice to us was watch as we proceed in the lab. So finding that sweet spot between letting science rip and being overly conservative about progress. Thank you. The next speaker will be Paula Bryant, who's going to be discussing the biodefense implications of gene editing. Paula? All right, thank you very much. So I had the task of putting a slide set together to talk about the implications of gene editing on biodefense. And my current position, I'm a senior scientist in um, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease within the NIH, which is within HHS, the Health and Human Services. Before that, I worked in the Department of Defense and was the chief of their medical S&T program for the Kim Biodefense Program. So now I sit in the HHS side of the house and we deal with public health concerns. We have a lot of infectious disease threats that we're constantly battling and mixed in with that is also the biodefense threat. Um, and so I've thought very carefully about how I would uh, frame uh, gene editing and biodefense and it's very hard um, not to, uh, to do a lot of scare tactics when you think about the two together um, because in biodefense we have to prepare for the unknown. And so before I get into any of that, I want to make sure I make a disclaimer that the next set of slides that I put together is not something that we've come up back at the home base. Um, this is my own scientific um, thought and um, framing of the issue with uh, building on the experiences I had at both the DOD and HHS biodefense programs. All right, so within HHS, um, HHS and the Department of Defense have been given the mandate to develop medical countermeasures against biodefense um, threat agents. Um, within HHS, uh, we are doing that for the civilian population, for the homeland, um, and also for overseas where there are outbreaks such as the Ebola outbreak and so forth. For the DOD, they're very focused on um, the military, so they're building countermeasures to protect the military. Much of the time, our um, mission overlaps with one another, so we work very close together with the DOD um, and NIAID. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes there are very specific situations for the military that that, um, th that required the design of a particular type of countermeasure that we wouldn't necessarily use in the human population. And so in those situations, we diverge. But what I wanted to show in this slide was just um, just show what are the different agencies involved and to kind of help frame um, how we look at biodefense as a problem and then how gene editing might come into play. Um, so we have the NIH, which is where I work, the National Institutes of Health, and specifically I work within the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. And this big blue circle here is circling the area of the critical path to drug development that we particularly deal with, which is preclinical uh, research, basic research, as well as early uh, clinical trials in, in humans. Um, within uh, HHS as well, we have our partner, BARDA, which um, is our advanced development partner specifically for flu and biodefense um, countermeasures. And so what they do is they take our findings and our uh, positive phase one data candidates that we get and they take it all the way through to the stockpile um, in, in, in full licensure with the FDA. Um, also, we, within HHS, we have the CDC, which specifically doesn't have a, a, a medical countermeasure mandate for uh, biodefense. Um, that's primarily within um, NIAID and BARDA. Within the DOD, our partners within the DOD, we have the DOD's Kim Biodefense Program. We have uh, their uh, S&T program, which is kind of equivalent to the NIAID NIAID program, and it's um, down at DITRA within Fort Belvoir. Whoops. Um, and the organization is called the Joint Science Technology Office that handles that. 
And then they have an advanced development partner similar to NIADS BARDA, which is called uh, JPEO. And JPEO um, is responsible for the advanced development of medical countermeasures for the military. As I said, we work very closely. It costs a lot of money to develop vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics to anything. And so uh, we can't have duplicative products for, for two different populations. And so we do team up and, and work on this together. So what frames the biodefense problem for us um, is, is given to us as mandates down from the president, presidential directors uh, from, um, that go through Homeland Security. We have HSPD. Uh, we have the, the different Homeland Security uh, presidential directives that tell us uh, what the biological threat is, what we should be concerned about, um, where we should put our priorities, and, and so forth. So what is that bio threat? Um, so the bio threat is very multifaceted for, uh, for both the homeland and the military. And this threat uh, scene has changed over the last decades. Um, but I want to emphasize that um, with the stand-up of biodefense within the U.S. from a defensive perspective, we have been worried about the classical biodefense threat as well as, whoops, the genetically engineered threat. So over here in the orange circle, the genetically engineered threat or the enhanced threat, or now we can add the synthetic uh, threat um, to that list, that has been around since the establishment of our defensive programs. It's not a new concept. All right, and it goes to this concept of being prepared for the known versus the unknown. And it's something that is drilled in your head while you're working in the biodefense community making countermeasures is that not only do we need to know how to prepare a vaccine that's protective against anthrax and plague, but we need to be able to uh, prepare a vaccine that was going to protect us from an unknown threat that we can't necessarily predict yet, all right? Um, and so, as you know, genetic um, gene editing and genetic engineering, you know, came around in the early 90s, and it's been around for a while, and it's been advancing, and that's what we're here to talk about today. But added now to this picture are the two bubbles at the bottom, and that is the emerging infectious disease, EID bubble, as well as the AMR um, bubble. And both of those, over the past five years, I would say, uh, maybe definitely the EIDs in the last 78 years, have, have, have gotten a, a kind of a grip within the biodefense community. Because we see uh, that a lot of the emerging infectious diseases are also on the, the category ABC pathogen list. And, and so we're facing this, this duality and that we're worried about them as a weaponized um, pathogen against us. But we also have to worry about them as outbreaks within, uh, within different communities across the nation and, and across our nation and, and throughout the world. And so emerging infectious disease, I've put on the, on the line um, for known versus unknown, because some of these were, we predict before they happen. We, we think about flu and different pandemic viruses that arise from that, and we get some warnings from that by looking across the globe and looking in um, the zoonotic community and so forth. And there are also diseases that we just didn't expect, like Zika, for instance, um, that's arisen in the last um, two years. AMR pathogens have become a real problem. And when you know you have common bacteria that aren't even hard to work with, like anthrax, that are resistant to common antibiotics, well, then you have a potential biothreat there because it could be utilized in a nefarious way um, because of its antibiotic resistance. So this is the threat. Um, and what I want to try to talk about today is, is two things. Number one is, does Genetic um, engineering and gene editing, as we know it, the CRISPR-Cas9 system, does it change this threat at all for us? Does it change how we approach medical countermeasure development in the government? 
All right, so one advantage of going last is that a lot of this has been talked about, so I don't get to harbor on it, but we've talked about early gene editing versus CRISPR-Cas9, and it's, it's definitely true that it's easier, it's cheaper, it's faster, um, it's a more precise, and also we haven't even touched on the concept of gene drives, but there's a, a lot of advantages that the CRISPR-Cas9 system has brought to the scientific community, and the scientific community is actively engaging. As Dr. Stewart said, you know, it's being used in laboratories every day, and it's really changed the way we go about things. Not to date myself, but when I was in graduate school, uh, making a knockout mouse would have been a thesis project, and today, that's not true at all. It's a couple of months and you're pretty much there and, and it, it just has changed the face of biology and we would have never predicted that seven years ago that we, we could edit like we can today. So it has great, great um, research uh, benefits and I am not gonna to, to go through these studies at all, um, but I just wanna put some headlines up here before I get into the more um, scary headlines, the beneficial headlines of CRISPR-Cas9. And so we heard from Dr. Stewart's talk, the, the role that CRISPR-Cas9 can play in gene therapy and therapeutic uh, types of applications. And so I just wanted to show two slides, one for diagnostics, since Zika is a really hot topic right now. And one of our biggest challenges in the Zika community is diagnostics. We don't have good diagnostics. We can't distinguish between Zika and dengue in the same um, region. We can't distinguish between different Zika strains. Are the Zika, is, is, does every Zika, is all the Zika viruses, are, are they the same or are there differences in some of the, the effects on their neurological system that we see due to differences in the, in the pathogen and so forth. And so it would be good to have better Zika diagnostics that are very specific, and this group took advantage of the CRISPR-Cas9 specificity and the simplicity of being able to use RNA instead of what we heard before by having to make proteins that interact with DNA and so forth. And they've been able to look at single amino acid changes in different Zika viruses out of monkey serum and pick up these changes with their um, diagnostic that they made. There's a lot more to it than just the CRISPR-Cas9 module, but nonetheless, this is where CRISPR-Cas9 has come in and really revolutionized their ability to quickly make a fieldable diagnostic that's very specific to a particular pathogen strain. Vaccines. Vaccines are my area that I work on most in, in biodefense, and um, we're always looking for novel ways to generate good vaccines. Um, right now, within Zika, you hear a lot about a, a lot of inactivated and live attenuated Zika strains that are going forward as vaccine candidates because it's kind of the lowest bar to uh, to develop a vaccine to utilize the entire whole uh, cell virus, but make it where it's not pathogenic and then use it as a vaccine. And this group has done a similar uh, thing with the pseudorabies virus. So pseudorabies virus is a big problem in China and the agricultural community. And um, they have a lot of issues with pseudorabies virus reemerging. And when it reemerges, it's no longer, um, the vaccine that they've made the year or two before is no longer effective against that new, newly emerged pseudorabies virus. And so they combined some old school uh, gene recombination technologies, technologies, the CRELOC system, with the CRISPR-Cas9 system, and were able to do multiple knockouts within the pseudorabies virus um, and generate a, uh, of, of different virulent genes that it, it, that it has and replace those with some selector uh, genes that would allow them to easily select their virus out of their modules, and they were able to generate a vaccine candidate that was protective, and it's shown here um, a protective, uh, some protective efficacy in a piglet model for a pseudorabies virus. So as far as I know, this is the, the first representation of an effective um, vaccine made with the CRISPR-Cas9 um, system. 
So yes, there's a lot of great advantages to CRISPR-Cas9. And in biodefense, as we're making countermeasures against a lot of these threats, it's been complicated. It's been difficult for some vaccine and therapeutic uh, strategies. And CRISPR-Cas9 gives us a lot of benefit. It makes things cheaper. It helps things go faster and so forth. So it, it brings a lot of good to the biodefense community with regard to making medical countermeasures. But then there's this this thing called dual use. And so there's everything in science, every technology, every advancement can be said to have a dual use. What you can do good things with, which I just showed you, making diagnostics, making vaccines. We talked about making a knockout mouse in a matter of months versus years. Um, there are a lot of things we can do with the CRISPR-Cas9 technology that's going to really advance us in the field of medicine um, in designing countermeasures to pathogens and, and other diseases. But at the same time, there's this huge concern that if it benefits us, it's gonna make it that much easier for someone who has a nefarious um, intent, right? And that is what biodefense is all about. We are, exist as a biodefense community to protect against that malicious intent that someone could do, that known threat and the unknown threat. And the maliciousness, whether it's going to happen, is almost all unknown and, and so forth. So um, as, uh, Dr. Uh, Director Clapper uh, stated um, in his um, briefing um, of the worldwide threat assessment to the US intelligence community, he stated that he felt that we were gene editing um, and CRISPR-Cas9 was implicated in that, was a weapon of mass destruction. It was that serious because it was giving the nefarious player that much of an advantage that they didn't have before. And so to agree or not to agree with that, I'm, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to set the stage a little bit to say, what do we do about that in the biodefense community? How do we look at that information and, and how do we, we, um, we deal with that? So we have the dual use conundrum, and as was, uh, as was presented nicely uh, by Dr. Michael, there's ethics around the use of this, but obviously someone in um, a terrorist organization or a do-it-yourselfer may not follow those same ethics um, as they approach it. And so I, I talked to you a little bit about the threat with regard to the agent or the pathogen, but in biodefense, there's also the player, the actor, the person who's going to use it. They're a part of that threat. And so when you try to decide what is our threat, what do we need to protect against, it's not just the pathogen, it's also who's going to release that pathogen or use it in a bad way because that helps define um, the threat a little bit further. And again, this is something I've completely made up here to try to make a point and I realized as I was looking at it this morning that it's not perfect, but it makes the point. Um, so over here on the left panel, are all of the things that you need to, to develop a weapon. You need first, you need malicious intent, all right? You need some finances to develop that weapon. You need to have access to the pathogens themselves. And as you know, um, most of these pathogens are very well tightly controlled um, under biocontainment and, and so forth. And they're not real easily attainable, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. And also, when you do work with them, you need your own containment capabilities because you're most likely going to infect yourself before you, you can release it as a weapon. They are dangerous to work with. Um, you need technical expertise. You need to know what you want to do and how to do it. Um, you need space to do that in. Some sort of lab or, as we now know, a garage can work, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. You need the reagents, the research reagents. Extremely expensive research reagents, as all of us scientists know. We need equipment. 
incredibly equipment. And we'll talk a little bit about how that's expensive, how that's also changing with the do-it-yourself community. Containment, you also need to know how to make it into a weapon, which is probably one of the biggest hurdles that stumped most state-based pro offensive programs in the 40s and 50s and 60s and, and, and so forth. And, it, it, and then you have to de decide what is a weapon, which is a whole other uh, Atlantic Council debate. But um, then you need, is it technically even feasible, all right? So I will say that CRISPR really helps with this, the technical feasibility. There are probably some things that in the past we would thought is too cumbersome, it's too laborious. The bang is not worth the cost. Um, we're not going to get a lot out of um, our labor for that. And then in the bottom blue, a very important thing is you really need a very deep understanding and knowledge of the pathogen genetics. And the reason I put that on there is that just like the technical feasibility to be able to use CRISPR, you really have to understand that pathogen. And we don't have that deep understanding of some of the pathogens that we're concerned about, all right? So that's still an unknown. And what I did here showed um, what are the actors that we are classically taught in the biodefense community. We have our state actors, which are government-sponsored actors, and you have your non-state actors, which are your terrorist communities, as well as your lone wolves. And I've simplified these into two different categories. And the state actors we've, that we've been most concerned about in the past, from the beginning of the biodefense um, idea, um, we are mostly concerned about that because they have access to all of these. Now we have you know, the Biological and Toxins Weapon Convention that most people have signed in the 70s, but nonetheless, we do know that most people had state-based offensive programs, that some of those stocks and caches and technologies and techniques and what they were doing are still out there somewhere, and so we still worry a little bit about that. Um, what I did is I put their nefarious intent as a circle meaning that they've signed the BWC, so maybe they don't have the intent like someone a lone wolf would have and so forth. And if you start thinking about who has access to what, do they have a full capability, and that by full means what, what we know is full today, that could change tomorrow, or do they just have a partial and try to weigh the scale, and still the state actor seems to be the primary player. But then you talk, think about gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9, and you think about what, um, uh, what the weapon of mass destruction it being labeled as that, and you think about the do-it-yourself bio community and the biohackers of the world, and it's just amazing how much this field has grown. It started a, a while ago. I really became aware of it in 2007, 2008. I can remember at Ditcher we had this huge S&T conference with over 2,000 people, and we had this big talk on the do-it-yourself bio community. There were challenges being put out to it, and it was in its infancy, infancy, and it was just very, very crude. All right, very crude. They didn't have access to centrifuges. They didn't necessarily have hoods. Um, they had some pipette men and so forth. And it has completely uh, progressed uh, much more significantly. And specifically with CRISPR-Cas9, here's a little, uh, a little uh, saran wrapper that's got CRISPR-Cas9 nuclease in it that a guy who's being interviewed for the do-it-yourself bio community um, just received from someone in Australia for free. You could buy it now for $60, but at this time, someone sent it to him for free, um, and that's a picture of it. And this guy happens to be 25 years old, lives in Manhattan uh, with his parents. Um, they have um, some money, so he lives in a penthouse, and he has an entire laboratory in that penthouse. It looks like a regular lab in the pictures. It's got cabinetry, there's centrifuges sitting in there, PCR machines, and now he has CRISPR-Cas9, and he's excited to play with it with plants, all right? 
And one, uh, so now you could do uh, at-home genetic experimentation with CRISPR-Cas9. Um, there are, there are, if you've ever gone on to having a child, I've gone on to instructables.com to figure out how to make science projects many times, or the Parthenon was last year's big experiment. But now I can go on and learn how to do an experiment with CRISPR-Cas9 on instructables.com. I mean, I could buy equipment off of eBay, but now there's multiple sites that um, where biohackers are learning how to make PCR machines. Here's a PCR machine right here. It's not the same sophistication that I would have in my lab when I was at Ohio State, but nonetheless, it can amplify DNA. Um, and it's only 500 bucks, so it serves its purpose versus spending thousands of dollars on this machine. And, and there's a, a former NASA researcher who's made the headlines a lot, um, and he's selling CRISPR kits. He raised over $65,000 to do this and is still raising money. He's launched an online site called Olden where there's tons of research agents available. And here's a CRISPR-Cas9 kit that you can get. You get everything here. You get a real pipette man. You get it all. And then you tell him whether you want a yeast strain or a bacterial strain to come with it to play with it. So, this technology is out there. There's do-it-yourselfers that are holding workshops on how to do different experiments using CRISPR-Cas9 and so forth. So the do-it-yourself bio community, along with a, an editing tool that some people claim a fourth grader can use, I don't know if they could, and that it can only take a week for someone to learn it in these do-it-yourself um, communities, kind of changes the face a little bit of the threat. Or does it? I don't know. I'm not trying to say that it does. But I think from Director Clapper's um, uh, issued statements, he does. And I think that's what they're concerned about. I think they're concerned that the scales are tipping and that instead of just the state actor, which really was the one that could do these sophisticated, complicated genetic engineering, um, that you are developing a community here that where you, it's more apt that the lone wolf, the lone wolf actor could potentially do it as well. Right? Um, definitely the tools are becoming more available and so forth. And so that's the question. Are we, are we tipping the scale a little bit to, to the lone wolf and the non-state actors like terrorist groups? Does CRISPR-Cas9 and other gene editing tools shift the nature of the threat as well? So I just showed the actor has more tools in their toolkit than, than, than they did before, and so they're approaching what looks like a, a state actor lab, but not quite. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a scale that was partially tipped a little bit less. Um, but does the nature of the threat change? So here I have a photograph of the uh, anthrax letter that was sent to Senator Daschle. Very simple, anthrax spores in a letter, and we all know what that did. There was no genetic engineering that needed to be done. There just needed to be a propagation of the bug, access to that and, and, and the drying down. And obviously the implications were on a researcher who had all that access and had access to the containment and so forth. Um, but in that situation, the most harm, the, the biggest threat was just to use those simple anthrax spores. There was no need to go the complex route of genetic engineering, um, which is over here. And so, you know, labeling CRISPR-Cas9, synthetic bio, gene drives as potential weapons of mass destruction, you know, implies that the threat is shifting there. And I guess that would be my question of discussion for the community. Is it really shifting when this is so powerful still? And that's something to always think about, that the classical threats are just as powerful right now. All right, so 
And then we get back to perhaps what the scariest biothreat is, and that is nature itself. And we heard a lot about what nature does already in gene editing and so forth. And we have had a lot of outbreaks. We've had Ebola, Zika. Um, we have new, um, with the Zika virus, we have new uh, physiological symptoms that we didn't see in the past with those types of viruses. Um, we have AMR, antibiotic-resistant pathogens, that we can't protect against. Um, and we have highly pathogenic influenza, you know, the one virus in the world that knows how to infect each one of us pretty well and does on a yearly basis. Um, it doesn't need to be um, taught to do that. It already knows how. And, and, and we have had a lot of pandemic scares with that. So there are a lot, there's a lot of complexity to the threat. And I guess the question is, does gene editing change that, this landscape at all? Or, uh, you know, it, it, does it pretty much stay the way that it is? Um, I will say that, you know, in the biodefense community, when you're making um, countermeasures against these pathogens, it's complicated because you don't know for sure what the unknown is going to be. But we've been told for more than a decade we had to be prepared for it. And now CRISPR-Cas9 and gene editing shows us that, yeah, it, it could happen. Someone could do it. But at the same time, we now have tools to be better prepared. So it, it works both ways with the dual, with the dual use. And so what is our strategy within government? And I think that you know, the original days of the old uh, US programs back in the early days, it was the one bug, one drug phenomenon. We kind of moved away from that 10, 15 years ago to this more broad spectrum solution so that you're not dependent on knowing what the pathogen is and so forth. And that's still true today. Nothing has changed by gene editing that we still need to be able to do that. For vaccines and diagnostics, we have to have innovative platforms, plug and play technologies where we can um, clearly uh, identify target antigens quickly and plug them into a, 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 some sort of delivery system that makes them into an immunogen. Um, so we're constantly investigating and, and investing in technologies that can do that. Um, and I think with the Ebola outbreak and now Zika, we're pushing vaccines forward than we've ever, faster than we ever have before because we've invested in these types of technologies and know how they work. We've taken them down the, the regulatory path with other pathogens and now we can plug in another antigen for a new rising EID um, more quicker. Um, and we focus a lot on, um, within um, NIAID on regulatory science. The FDA is part of HHS. Um, we can work as fast as you want in developing these countermeasures, but in the end, it kind of hits the same wall, and that's called the regulatory path. Um, and we have to jump through those hoops to, to get those um, countermeasures approved, regardless of whether it's a genetically engineered threat or not. And I think I'm going to stop here and not go through my last two slides um, based on time and just, just leave it open. And I guess the, the issues that I wanted to put forth today is that from the biodefense perspective of the U.S. federal government, whose, whose charge is to make countermeasures against these threats, we have always been concerned about that unknown genetically engineered threat. Does CRISPR-Cas9 or other gene editing tools change that threat? It just makes the threat more realistic and, and, and validates that we were concerned about it yet, because yes, it, it, it could potentially be done. But it does also benefit our, our, uh, our attack against those threats, absolutely. It helps facilitate our science and makes it easier for us to develop countermeasures quicker to those threats. And I'll end there. Take a seat in front. 
and I'll just start by asking if there's any questions from the audience to the speakers. Well, I guess I, I guess I'd respond that the, um, the the concept was good, but the technical tools were not available, which is the reason for today's meeting. That the technical tools have become uh, widely available, cheap, and relatively easy to use. So, what was pure science fiction is now a little bit closer to reality. But they did look at the ethical implications and the yeah. possible. Uh, you know, implications of the whole thing. Right. And I think the, one of the issues which is relevant currently is the regulatory environment and the fact that not every player plays by the rules. And it is possible that at some point in time, some country will want to create, you know, superhumans. And I think there are several novelists who are focused on this and looking at developing super soldiers and so on and so forth. I think at this point in time, I think it would be difficult for this to become a reality in the next 12 months, but it's possible that in the future as the technology becomes more sophisticated, uh, that it'll be possible. As Dr. Stewart mentioned today, if you tried to create this right now, you'd probably be dealing with more mistakes than successes, and you'd deal with people with probably with malignancies, people would have sudden death, and so on and so forth. But that may not be true in the future as the technique becomes more sophisticated. I guess I didn't make myself clear. I'm not talking about uh, the details. I'm talking about people who have thought about the implications of technology long before the technology existed. Mm -hmm. And now you're talking about what are the implications and how do you handle it. Not, not technical, but societal. Right. And science fiction writers seem to have been thinking about that for decades. Right. They might be very good participants in these discussions. Well, my PhD advisor always told me to surround yourself with smart people. So you know, I've had discussions with people who do things very different than what I do in life. And I always find those very illuminating. But you know, I think the other side of that is be, be cautious about how novel, pe how novel people's ideas really are. You know, if, you ha if you have a good idea today, probably seven other people just had it. We all tend to sense the same level of information. You might remember the novelist um, Clancy who wrote uh, one novel where an airplane crashed into the, into the uh, Capitol. And of course, that was pre-9-11 when he wrote that. And many people were saying, oh, maybe he gave the idea to terrorists. But you know, you've asked my father, who fought in World War II in the Navy in the Pacific, he said the Japanese routinely would fly airplanes into fixed structures called ships. So you know, I, think, I think we can make, make a lot of these kinds of, uh, of issues maybe a little bit uh, overblown. But um, I still go back to the basic premise. Talk to a, a wide variety of people, and you'll learn more. Here, I'm, uh, I'm Steve Grunfen. I run uh, what's called the Emerging Defense Challenges uh, Initiative here at the Atlantic Council. 
question, and my question, and it's the central thing that I want to be able to walk away from this conversation understanding, is where is the, um, and I suppose it depends on the application, be it, uh, but what is today's capability? I've, I've lost track in the dialogue, popular dialogue about this, and even in this conversation, about what is possible today to do uh, with gene editing in some, uh, not in a technical sense, but I suppose in a practical sense that a, that a norm, that a person, a layman uh, to the science would, would, would recognize, as distinct from, you know, what, what science fiction extrapolates even 10 or 15 years from now. Where are we right now today? I think from a bioweapon, and I'll open to the, from a bioweapon standpoint, the answer depends on who the, who the group you're looking at is. So for example, if it's a country actor who has a sophisticated laboratory. On the left-hand side of the scale. Correct. CRISPR permits you to uh, mutate organisms more efficiently, and it's easier to develop a bioweapon which is more lethal uh, and can be produced at a lower cost than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years yes. ago. So I think that's a reality for a country state. If and a bioweapon might be some kind of a virus. It could be a different thing. So for example, in the past, we looked at you know class one or category one agents. Uh, one of the example is anthrax, and you yep. produce anthrax, which, as mentioned previously, by itself is a pretty potent agent. Right. Uh, but if you want to release the anthrax, you have to put it in a form where the powder will disseminate easily, and that requires a fair amount of knowledge. You could produce an anthrax by this technology, which is more resistant to antibiotics. Is there a need for that? There may not be a need for that. And you don't need CRISPR to do this. There's a lot of other technologies which could render anthrax more resistant. Mm -hmm. I think where there is concern is, uh, could you modify an organism which is not a category one agent or a class one agent, but truly a common organism? Mm -hmm. And could you take this organism and render it resistant to antibiotics and go in different salad bars and put that in salad bars? So you don't need to be an expert in weaponization. You just need to have a broth and... But Pierre, forgive me for interrupting. Today we could do that. Today, today you could do this. A malicious yes. actor could, you know, have the technology and the capability. You could do that. And I think CRISPR just makes it easier yeah, to do this. Probably. In the but past, they could also do that, but it would have been more difficult Currently, I think if you add, you know, the sophistication and the equipment, you could probably, you know, mutate or do genetic changes in a bacteria and use it as a bioweapon. We've just, ra you know, we've just lowered the bar. Uh, we didn't bring the bar down to the floor. We just lowered it. So the technology here makes it easier for someone, a lone wolf, to be able in the foreseeable future of doing this. Today, it's probably difficult for a lone wolf to do this. Someone who has a lab with sophistication probably could do it. Um, so I think the easier, though, it needs to be really explained in that, you know, before, if you wanted to make a particular pathogen uh, more virulent by upregulating a particular virulence factor or by um, getting uh, rid of maybe uh, another factor that was somewhat inhibitory and so forth. Mm -hmm. Whatever you wanted to do to that organism with the old uh, 
techniques that were available, they were very laborious. You had yes. to really want to do that and think it out and really hypothesize, is this, what, is this the gene I really want to snip out and replace? Uh, and a lot of that technology um, caused insertions near active genes because it just didn't target a, a single, uh, a single, uh, a single base for its cutting or insertion. It, it would knock out other active genes, and so then you would have to have that capability in your laboratory to then screen and characterize what you did and see did you really make what you wanted to make. And most of the time, you did and you didn't, or you affected another change because your recombination event that you caused um, actually um, resulted in damage to other genes you didn't want. There was a lot of off-target effects, and there are off-target effects with CRISPR as well. Yeah. Um, but CRISPR is in the laboratory when you're working with a cell line um, or a bacteria, uh, for sure, and then maybe viruses at the bottom. You're, you, it's much easier. You could do this just you could knock them out in a few days and understand whether you've done something that's successful or not. And that's a big difference than saying, you know, grants, you know, many grants that are funded by the NIH used to have an entire year of just making the mutation and then the year after characterizing that mutation. And we're, th we're talking about really speeding that process yes. up in a, in a way we didn't think would be possible to go that fast. Yeah. And so it makes it, and it's cheaper. You know, um, the, the, the nucleases are cheaper, it's easier to, to do it, and so it really makes the, that a, a possibility, whereas before you really had to think twice about it. Let me tell you why I think that, that is more of a threat. This is, this is what Paula does for a living, it's not what I do for a living, but it just makes sense. You go back to 75 when we were just beginning to work with restriction endonucleases, and largely before companies even sold them to us as scientists, we were making them themselves in our labs. So every shot, if you were a bad person, every shot you'd have to introduce something bad um, into the field would be like a muzzle-loading rifle. It takes a long time to get a shot off. And we mentioned, what I mentioned before is that we're not as smart as Mother Nature. We make changes in the laboratory. We think we're really being specific, probably not being as specific as we as we'd think, or if you were a terrorist, as you'd hope. So as a consequence, you will be doing other things to that organism that when you introduce it into the field, probably won't work as you had in, intended. It may be a wimp outcompeted by wild-type organisms that don't have a potentially lethal component, but are just more fit and will overgrow. Okay, now you get into the more modern era. We go through synthetic biology. Now we're into gene editing. Just as Paula said, everything's getting easier to make. So instead of a muzzle loader, now I have a light machine gun. And I might not need to hit the target more than once or twice, but if I fire 100 rounds, I will hit you. So I think that really is, is, is the key, is that the terrorist is not going to be all that smart in knowing what the unintended consequences are of tinkering with an organism. But it gives them the opportunity to maybe to make 100 different variants in the time it would take to make you know, one. And the consequence of having 100 variants out there, maybe now one slips through and in fact is lethal and is persistent in the environment. I think that's the real threat. And we didn't even talk <clears throat> about the entomolo entomological aspects. You know, Zika's got us all thinking about mosquitoes, and we know Zika carry, is carried by mosquitoes, it's dengue, chick, a lot of bad um, EIDs that have come out. Ebola isn't carried by Zika, uh, by a mosquito. Um, anthrax is not carried by a mosquito. One of the things that's hard about a lot of those Ebola and anthrax is, is this whole idea we talked about, are they weaponizable? Because you have to weaponize them because there's no other way. It's not like flu where I can just kind of 
go to lunch with him and salad sprinkle, bar. you know, the salad bar and or sneeze or She's do something, and 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 it's very infectious and contagious and can do that. But now we have this way. We've talked about genetically engineered mosquitoes already in the Zika um, outbreak, and and to introduce those to control Zika. But think about it, turning it around the other way is now we genetically engineer a, a mosquito to carry one of these bad bio threats that it normally wouldn't have. And, and we also couldn't figure out how we would deliver it to a population. Well, now we can do it in the mosquito pretty easily with, with CRISPR. I mean, not that it would work, as, as, as um, Nelson just said, but it would be fast to try and see if it, if it would. Um, yes. Uh, there's a close parallel, well, I retired from government last year. This is a hot topic when I worked. Uh, um, to, to computer viruses. I mean, and, and mm. ARPANET was built by DARPA many, many years ago, and now everybody has access to the internet, and everybody can Google, and the bad guys and unknown countries can hack the DNC and lift Michelle Obama's Gmail. Nobody ever thought about that when the ARPANET was built by the military many years ago. So the technology spread so fast and far out that you know, 20-year-old kids in some country we don't know you know, can hack into us, any of us, probably. Uh, and the same speed of progress now is happening in the bio world. Okay, where, as you say, thanks to CRISPR and a lot of good science, good people trying to cure bad stuff. Well, the cat's out of the bag, you know, for a small amount of money, you can do it in your lab, you know, what the big guys did that were winning Nobel Prizes. Mm -hmm. I retired from the CIA last year, so I, this, this is a topic I'm The majority of biohackers work in what they refer to as community labs because it costs a lot of money to buy the equipment. And the community labs have a code of ethics of the type of research which is being done. Uh, the FBI is also intimately related to the mm -hmm. biohacker groups, and I think they uh, try also to ensure that there's no one you know, going out out there doing something nefarious. But as you can imagine, you can control only so much. And you control people who want to be controlled. Uh, if someone does not want to be controlled and wants to do it in his own little lab in the garage, there's no easy way for you to regulate these individuals. And it's the same thing in international treaties. The international treaties only work for countries who wish to abide to the international treaties. If you decide not to, there's not much you can do. You could put sanctions, but apart from sanctions, you can't prevent. Uh, so I think that, as you mentioned, to a certain extent, the cat is out of the bag. The technology is available. Uh, it depends on what Paula mentioned beforehand, having a nefarious intent having the money, the equipment, and the know-how uh, prob are probably currently the limiting factors. We did discuss this in intensely in our commission's debate about synthetic biology. Uh, 
we had a number of, of individuals from the do-it-yourself uh, biology community. And, and you know, yes, some of these are just are individuals that don't have much of a sense of a community, but most of them do because they talk to each other. It's like everything else, especially in today's you know, connected world. These folks know each other. They talk to each other all the time. They collaborate. As you know, has uh, been mentioned, they don't have the wherewithal. They're not Harvard University. Okay? Um, so they have a, their own internal uh, community. We had an FBI official sitting right next to one of them uh, in a panel of four people that, that gave us uh, testimony. So those communities, the law enforcement, the intelligence community, the DOIE community, they know a lot about each other. And it, is, it makes sense for those, for those communities to be engaged with each other. Why? Because in my view, it's probably more likely that somebody in that community does something that they didn't intend to do that wasn't so good, right? Then they'll get shut down. So, so it behooves the right-minded parts of a, of, of a DOIE community. It, it is better to have some degree of self-policing and for having communities that do science traditionally, communities that do science non-traditionally. And part of the, the, the ethical debate is it behooves all of us to talk to each other. And this doesn't get to, to, to bad people, because I see you in the background shaking your head. And I'm glad you do. I sleep better at night because people like you are always worried about the worst case scenario. But a substantial part of a scenario is somebody doing something that's bad, but they didn't intend to. And that will have consequences on all the rest of that community that really never want that to happen. And I would hope that people like you have deep contacts in those communities so that somebody would turn to you and say, you know, I'm not so sure about this guy. Actually, I, I am. But um, she's OK, but he's, he's doing weird stuff. And you know, I, I would hope that kind of tension, healthy tension ex exists so that we can help each other do the right thing. I mean, just, just to close a loop back to the first question here, I think we've been able to do this for 20 years. I don't think anything terrible has happened yet, but it's a short time in the arc of human history, and, and it is getting easier. So that's, that's the reason we're here today. Because yeah. I was looking forward yeah. to your answer to my question. What about the right hand, the red light side of your three columns, uh, if you remember the slide I'm referring to? No. Um, uh, we all agree we would like to uh, edit genes in order to defeat childhood diseases. We're not all uh, on the same sheet of music as to whether I can prevent my oh, children and grandchildren yeah. at mm -hmm. this point from having baldness. Right. We're, we're, can, could, if, I, if I were willing to pay some money, could I assure my grandchildren did not have baldness today, given today's technology? Um, I think, or, or some other deformity. In I, I think if you if you have the mind to do it, you can. We already can engineer plants and, and yeah. worms and mice at will. And if you had the will and intent to do it, you could probably do the same in a human. I would think today. So, today, if today. you if you really had your mind set on doing that, yeah. But that hits a significant bioethical wall, because why is that? Why is that meritorious? I understood that. I just wanted to know, aside from yeah. the intent and the ethics, just the, yeah. the, the every the field of science. yeah. I mean, every field of, of of human endeavor is suffused with comfort, comforting those that suffer, versus preventing uh, bad things that happen in the first place. And the other end of that spectrum are enhancements, making me smarter, making me, I mean, maybe in some societies taller is not so good. Maybe baldness is sexy. I don't know. Um, it yeah, it is. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, that, it gets, I mean, that, that, that's where the slippery slopes really 
Get into Tell it. Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing. I just married a tall woman. The other thing, Steve, is you can change one gene, but you don't really know fully the impact of that change. So for example, Nelson was talking about HIV, and there's a gene called CCR5, which is a receptor. And if you knock out this, you may prevent or decrease the risk of people contracting HIV in the future if you put that in the embryo. But will that impact other human processes? So is it possible that we're going to do that and find out that people develop thyroid cancer at the age of 14? The, the thing is, who knows? Uh, so I think at this point in time, the technology is out there, but the consequences of your changes are not all understood. Can I, can I call those, sorry, the, the system effects? Because mm -hmm. I did get some reinforcement in my presumption that we, can, we know how to do a thing, but we don't understand the system effects. Correct. Okay. Yes, I think that's fair. thing very well, particularly that's in true. therapeutics that's or true. Right. therapeutics. Maybe your maybe your offspring would have lots of hair, but they would be stupid. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> Hope that works it's out. Correlated. Hope that so, works out for you. Yes, yes, yeah. As in my family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. They all be Dallas Cowboys fans. Bad things. Not On a scale of 1 to 10, I would put it probably between 2 and 3 out of 10. So I would go higher. I think that, that in a biological, um, a biological event is inevitable, just like the anthrax attacks were. The scale of that attack, I, I, I can't tell you. you know, I, I don't know how I feel about that, really. But I do think, you know, biological attacks are inevitable. I do think, though, however, um, you know, the, the, the old, I guess, Cold War days of how we thought about biodefense originally in the 40s and 50s were that needed to be weaponized on the end of a warhead and dropped on soldiers crossing a, a large, you know, arena. I, I, that doesn't concern me. What concerns me more is uh, concerns me. It's definitely, <laughs> I think, uh, just smaller, intimate venues, special forces units going into a small uh, building, and you know that type of thing. I, I think that's where the threat really lies. I don't think it's the smartest thing to do. And so, if there was any intelligence behind it. You know, you would look to what Syria is doing with chemical weapons is much more effective than what we can probably do with bioweapons right now. Um, genetically engineered using CRISPR when I can just release some anthrax spores. I mean, I, there's, if you really thought about it, and if someone really wanted the most bang for their buck and wanted to be in and out quickly and didn't want a fingerprint on it, they would have to make it very simple, very effective, and clean, you know. And um, I don't think with genetically engineered threats, those three things are boxes are checked. So Yeah, I mean I, I think I would I would I would come down on, on that reasonable person argument, which is there could be, there could be with these technologies, 
something horrific, mm -hmm. something that is the 1918 Spanish flu equivalent where five zero million people die on, the, on planet Earth because someone finally figures out that magic bullet. But I think it's far more likely that we'll, we'll see continued misery from things that are more mundane. I mean, 29,000 people die every week across the world of HIV infection, right? And about 20,000 kids in Africa die every week of malaria infection. I mean, these are, so, you know, if you sort of go down the list of issues, like are you concerned humanitarian? Are you, are you, uh, you know, working in the intelligence community? Or you are concerned? Are you a brigade commander? See, if you had to wear a Mop 4 gear, you'd never say what you did. It's really hard to, to operate in that kind of clothing. But, you know, so it really, I think it really depends the answer to your question is, is what are you really concerned with? Are you concerned about, um, you know, a tsunami again in coastal Japan? I mean, there's lots of terrible things that, that can happen. I, I, think, I think the onus on the defense community and the counter-defense community is what, where do you put your, your, your resources? Do you want to chase down every DOIIer? Or do you want to figure out a way so that we can actually defeat ongoing uh, pandemics so we focus more on on flu that's likely to emerge again and, and kill a lot more people than potentially some, you know. So I think that's really, you have to put it into context. I, I keep on going back because, again, I was trained as a molecular biologist. It is really, really hard to understand biology. And as, as smart as we've gotten, the more I learn about biology, the more I realize we don't know. And so I just, I, I think it's far more likely that every time you try to tinker with an organism, you won't make it quite as good as you think. But if as techniques become more massively parallel, instead of making one organism or 100, now let's say that five years from now there's yet another transforming technology, and now I can make 100,000 bacterial um, variants that have some lethal gene. Yeah, then I'm. So I would say watch this. If, if you're if you're bioethically interested, watch this technology. If you're interested in its in its pharmaceutical or or, or um, ways that we can better protect humankind against diseases, it's great. You know, but watch what, what we're doing to make sure we're, we're within ethical standards. If you're in the defense community, watch this technology carefully because it is on a trajectory from since 1975 to 2016 for us getting a lot more efficient in tinkering with biology. So I'd say right now, I'd, I'd say it's, you know, I'm not probably closer to your estimation than Paul is, but um, uh, that may change over time. I think there's definitely a trend. But I didn't get a number. You I, did. Didn't, I did not you get see, a number. You said more than that. I just said more than two or three. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't worry. I, I think I would probably echo some of the similar comments. I don't worry about this at all, to tell you the truth. Um, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job of making uh, horrible bacteria by overprescribing antibiotics. Yeah. We're doing just fine there. Um, so I, I don't tend to. And I think we've been able to genetically engineer things for you know, 25 years already. And uh, so I don't. It's low. I would give it a one on my things I worry about. Yeah, and I think on my last slide, yeah. I, why I put in red the EID, the Emerging Infectious Disease, and the AMRs, because that's really that's really our threat as a society, you know. Antimicrobial resistance. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, th I think the technology is going to continue to improve. I think the uh, accuracy will improve. The efficiency will improve. 
but the um, the uses will not. I mean, I think the uses are both good and bad will stay the same. So I think it will just be a more efficient, uh, easier system. And I think a lot of the ethical questions we ask ourselves today will be more relevant in 20 years from now because we'll be able to answer more precisely the consequences, at least in some circumstances, of a genetic change. So it will be more realistic for parents to have a conversation about what they would like their children and progeny to be. And I think that's where you know, society will need to make decisions on the ethics of if you have the money uh, and you have the resources, are you allowed to do that? And I think that I don't have the answer to the question, but I think these questions right now are more theoretical, and I think in 20 years from now, maybe more questions that people ask themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. Good question over here. I thought, you know, I'm just curious if, if they have an economic advantage because they don't necessarily follow the same rules that we might. Yeah, I'm not faulting them. I'm not yeah. saying they just have a different set of rules. Well, the genomics industry, as you know, is you know, a trillion-dollar industry to become. Um, I think right now the U.S. continues to lead the, the, the biggest most successful startups are still in the United States, but that doesn't preclude other countries um, coming in and out-competing. But I think that's the same for any industry. I'm not sure that having less ethical boundaries would necessarily give them a huge advantage. In, in the private sector in the US, many of those regulatory boundaries are, are either not present at all or are less strictly regulated. So. 
And China, for example, has strict guidelines on what they do with embryonic cells, probably as stringent at our, as our guidelines. And uh, I think that you know we in the United States have uh, the uh, Department of Agriculture, for example, has permitted now the use of CRISPR in genetically modifying corn. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, or the, the Department of Agriculture decided that it, they would not regulate it. So within the next five years, we'll probably have some corn out there which will be genetically modified uh, and available in the United States. I think a lot of the regulation will touch, or the lack of regulation will touch, you know, embryo human embryonic research. I think everybody, every country is supportive of research uh, as a whole. Probably there's significant support for agricultural research. I think there's some concerns in the GMO community, you know, you know, is it, do we want that type of product or not? But I think there's a lot of pressure to release these products in the community. I think the main resistance is in humic, human embryonic research. And I think you're correct. There are countries which will not abide to the regulation, but I'm not sure that they're going to get a big edge out of this. Yeah. I think I'd be more concerned about maintaining, you know, um, effective STEM education in this country, making sure that, you know, both, you know, that I have a daughter and a son, making sure my daughter doesn't feel intimidated in the mathematics class in her first year of college. Um, why is the internet so, so, so damn slow in the city? Um, when I go to Europe, it's a lot faster. You know, why is our infrastructure falling apart? I mean, those are the things that keep me up at night about, uh, so in, instead of worrying about, you know, why the other team might be getting better, and look at our own team and saying, why do we suck so much? So I, I think it's, it's better for us to concentrate on what we can do to improve ourselves and make ourselves competitive. I think we're, from the gene editing perspective, we're, we're, we're still nowhere near that being a routine tool. Um, I think from the perspective of um, embryo selection, we're, very, we're getting very yes. close to routine genomic testing of families and routine genomic testing of the whole population. I mean, I personally think everybody in the United States should have their genome sequenced and then we would mm -hmm. potentially eradicate inherited diseases in this country. So uh, that, that uh, that's kind of where I stand, and it's my job um, not to worry so much about the biodefense aspects. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. For Thank